Welcome to Sherd's Podcast, where we're dedicated to exploring the peripheries of world literature and unearthing neglected texts from outside the mainstream canon. The wind was the cause of it all. The sand, too, had a share in it, and human beings were involved. But the wind was the primal force, and before it, the whole series of events would not have happened. It took place in West Texas, years and years ago, before the great ranges had begun to be cut up into farms and plowed and planted to crops when there was nothing to break the sweep of the wind across the treeless prairies, when the sand blew in blinding fury across the plains, or lay in mocking waves that never broke on any whosoever distant beach, or piled in mounds that fickle gusts removed almost as soon as they were erected, when for endless miles there seemed nothing but wind and sand and empty, far-off sky. That was the opening paragraph of Dorothy Scarborough's The Wind, which was originally published anonymously in 1925. The novel concerns the fate of Letty, a young girl plucked out of a life of ease in Virginia and forced to move to the plains of Sweetwater, Texas, at the height of a terrible drought in the 1880s. Letty struggles to acclimatise in this new, hostile environment, its ugly, arid vistas and its harsh manners, but it's the incessant wind that strikes her most deeply. As her isolation increases, she begins mentally to imbue the wind with a supernatural power, coming to believe that it intends to destroy her and everything she holds dear. Join us over the next hour while we give our thoughts and impressions of this lost classic of American literature. We hope you enjoy our conversation. So welcome to episode nine of Sherd's podcast. I'm joined today by Patricia Pullum, who's a professor of Victorian literature at the University of Surrey. Thanks for coming on to the show. Thanks for inviting me, Sam. Pleasure to have you. Um, so we're talking today about The Wind by Dorothy Scarborough, originally published in 1925. How did you feel about reading this one? I have to say, this novel really blew me away, and I'm not just saying that to make a joke. I thought it was a fascinating text. Uh, I liked the fact that it was a, the, a novel about the frontier experience from a female perspective, um, I love the way that the wind became almost like a supernatural entity in the, in the, in the novel, uh, affecting people's lives in a variety of ways. And I also love the contrast between the uh, present experience in the frontier land compared with her very domestic, soft, green life in Virginia. 
Yeah, it, re- it really is the landscape that made it so enjoyable for me. I think the setting of the book is, is really crucial, isn't it? Particularly the descriptions of these barren plains of sweet water. They're just so atmospheric, and I think they grow more so throughout the book. I think so. Uh, I think you can feel the wind and you feel the sand, you feel the grittiness of the environment, you know, those wonderful descriptions of how the sand gets into everything in the house. Uh, it's on the tables, it's on the plates, it's in the cups that you, where you when you're drinking. Um, it's just everywhere and you're conscious that nature is infiltrating your domestic space on a, on a regular basis. And then the way that it's juxtaposed with Letty's home in Virginia plays a big role in building up that sense of mounting dread. From the very first moment on the on the train, when she's thinking about what Sweetwater will look like, and I think despite the biographical reasons for Dorothy Scarborough having chosen that location, it's a sort of masterful choice for the name of this town because when Letty pictures a town with the name of Sweet Sweetwater. She pictures a green and lush landscape with orchards and flowers and instead finds this very dry, arid and decidedly sinister country with this incessant blowing wind. It's really wonderfully done, I think. It is. And I think that the kind of moments where she retreats to the life she had in Virginia are really kind of important because they chart her increasing sort of psychological debility and the need to return to a home that she misses desperately. Because I think what we don't really uh, always sort of fully appreciate is just how homesick she is. Uh, There's that kind of acknowledgement that she's lost her home and we know that she has no one left in Virginia to live with. So she goes to this family, that uh, her cousin Bev and his wife Cora, with whom she initially thinks she's going to live live in near Sweetwater. Yet... What happens is that it it goes wrong and so she has to constantly retreat into her memories and experience the sort of lushness of of the Virginia life to allow her to cope imaginatively um, with the aridity and horrors of the wind in, in the Texas plain. There are some other things I really like about this as well. I love the use of dialect in the novel. I think there's a real liveliness to the dialogue that comes from the use of these dialect words and and some phonetic spelling especially when the character of sourdough speaks one of the cowboy characters and he provides a bit of comic relief in the novel but the, the sort of local details in the vocabulary the meals of um sour belly and harmony <laughs> you know as a term for bacon and grits and the the rabbit twist and to which they're <laughs> invited, which we find out is a is like a local dance. I think they th- these terms, this dialect, really brought the region to life for me. It, it, it gave the book a degree of I don't know authenticity or realism for me. And I think also the use of um, folk song right the way through, uh, it sort of punctuates the novel like a kind of chorus, doesn't it? You know, it's a sort of tragedy, and somehow those those songs tell you what's going to happen or, or foreshadow what, what, what's going to happen don't you think they do yeah they're really expertly kind of threaded through the narrative i think i was wondering do you think of this as a as a horror novel i don't know if you know this term slow burn horror but it reminded me of something like that this very gradual build 
you know, with the character of Letty, her her mind and her and her body are kind of very gradually eroded by this by this wind, and it sort of builds to a, a pitch by the end of the novel. Do you think of it as a piece of horror fiction as well? In some ways, yes. I mean, it's, it's certainly a psychological psychological terror that's threaded right the way through the text. I think, but I th- but at the end of the novel, when you come to um, a kind of horrific moment, and I don't know if we we want to um, insert a spoiler or not. To my mind, spoiler is a is a dirty word. I, I don't think it matters, <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> But maybe not so early. No, I, I think we can come back to that. But I think that the, that particular description towards the end of the text is a moment of pure horror. It did remind me of the experience of reading certain ghost stories and, and horror fiction. I, I had the same kind of associations with this book. It's interesting that you should say that because that particular scene that we'll come to later stayed with me for days it seared my mind. And it is foreshadowed in the first paragraph of the book as well, isn't it? It is. There's a wonderful sort of architecture to this text as well. I wonder why the book isn't more broadly accepted as a kind of classic of American literature. I have my own ideas, but why do you think that might be? Perhaps, to some extent, Scarborough's been overshadowed by, for example, Willa Cather, whose works are very well known, and of course they were published as part of the uh, Virago Press series, Virago Classics. So I think that, to that extent, uh, she's kind of, she seems like a poor relation to someone like Cather. Cather's works about about um, the Nebraskan frontier land. They're much more readily accessible. They've been studied a great deal. They've gained a, a kind of common approval that isn't quite there uh, in, in relation to Scarborough. The other thing, I think, is that the way that race is treated in the novel is a bit problematic. There's this kind of casual racism, isn't there, in, in Letty's description of well, a Virginian home and her relationship with her mammy, for example. But it struck me today uh, that, obviously, that's very similar to something like Gone with the Wind, Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind, where the same kind of casual racism exists, but it hasn't affected the popularity of Gone with the Wind in quite the same way, has it? So what were your thoughts? That very casual racism isn't just in the descriptions of um, the relationship between... Letty and her nanny but it it's also in the authorial voice it seems that Dorothy Scarborough unfortunately has a fondness for the term darky yeah I I found that really uncomfortable reading yeah I would flinch every time I came to it and uh, it's not only placed in the characters mouths it's it's part of Dorothy Scarborough's narrative voice sadly and I think this it really does mar the text it does distort it to a degree and I think that most modern readers might have a problem with it. I can imagine this really having classic status now were it not for those problems. One more thing that occurred to me is the very fact that it was originally published anonymously. I think the reception to to the book when it was first published was very hostile. Yes, as I understand it, Texans were really outraged that the, the representation of of, uh, of their land. Yeah, it was seen as a kind of indictment of the way of life in in Texas, and and considered that had the author any pride in in their work, they would have published it under their own name. And 
maybe it was sort of scarred by that initial reception as well. But it's very difficult to say conclusively. It is. And I think we're always going to, I mean, especially, you know, as I'm somebody who kind of works on Victorian literature, there are always going to be those moments where you read things in text that are just kind of anathema to us, but that uh, we can't ignore to some extent. They are part of uh, a former way of thinking and, and unfortunately an existing way of thinking and I don't think it's always good to just ignore them but sometimes for example you could read this text you could study this text and challenge and think about why these particular kind of approaches to uh, to the other uh, uh, existed at the time and continue to exist now. So I read an article called Race, Labour and the Gothic Western by Susan Collin, which it seemed to me tried to make an argument that would reject that kind of straightforward reading of the racism in this text and uh, and try to see it as a kind of criticism of the way that the white pioneers here treated people of other races, including uh, Native Americans and the black community. But I think it's, it's kind of undeniable, sadly, that Dorothy Scarborough seems to have shared some of these views, wouldn't you say? Yes, I, I'd agree. I think that Colin does make an interesting point. She talks about the way in which um, the genre that, well, she sees it as a kind of anti-Western, doesn't she? And she talks about the way it borrows from the Gothic. And she suggests that the Gothic allows the kind of return of the racially repressed, whether that be Native Americans or black slaves. But I agree that I don't think that Dorothy Scarborough would have viewed the black slaves or Native Americans or even Mexicans as her equals. Even though she is she is fascinated by the culture of the black community in Texas, she goes on to collect folk songs and to write books about that community. But no one is treated with very much... No other races are treated with very much respect in this text, I don't think. So I thought it would be worth saying something about Dorothy Scarborough's life. She was born in 1878 in East Texas in a town called Tyler. And they seemed to be a fairly well-to-do family. And in 1882, they moved to Sweetwater, where the wind is set and where we might imagine Scarborough drew much of the material for her depiction of this setting in the wind. Yeah, so when Letty arrives in Sweetwater in the novel, Scarborough describes it like this calls it a straggling collection of small houses of the rudest, simplest structure, some not even painted, some without fences around them, none softened by the protection of a tree, nor made homelike by a lawn or garden, just little bare, box-like houses, naked and unbeautiful, set down in a waste of sand. So we might imagine the, the town looking something like that when, when the family moved there. They'd moved there in order to treat Dorothy's mother... Mary Scarborough who had tuberculosis and the drier climate there was supposed to help her but by 1887 the family moves back to Waco in central Texas where the children can receive a good education. I don't know if you have read about this but literary talent seems to run in the family did you see that both of her siblings also became writers? Yes, I, I read about that. Uh, and I thought actually that she was a really interesting figure herself in being a kind of 
pioneer new women, new woman in academia, because she gained her PhD, didn't she? In uh, was it Columbia University? Yeah, that's right. I mean, before that, she'd been to Oxford to study, but at the time. They didn't award degrees to women, so yeah, she completed her PhD at Columbia University. And she also taught creative writing there, and one of her students was, quite incredibly, Carson McCullers. So yeah, she, she finishes her PhD in, at Columbia, and her thesis is immediately published as uh, The Supernatural in Modern English Fiction. Maybe you can tell me, because I'm maybe not so aware of the scholarship in, in that area, 1917 strikes me as really early for such a book to have appeared. Is that right? I, I think it is pretty early for that kind of overview. And she, especially because she talks, doesn't she, about sort of looking at the last 30 years of, uh, of, of supernatural fiction. So she's um, really dealing with quite contemporary or with her contemporaries, if you like, uh, which I which I thought was fascinating. But she also does write about the Romantic Gothic as well. So she talks about Walpole's The Castle of Astranto, Radcliffe's The Mysteries of Udolpho, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And of course, there were other people who had written, for example, uh, short pieces on the supernatural in art and fiction. So Vernon Lee, on whom I've written quite a lot, um, is obviously one of those but I think this kind of PhD thesis on the supernatural by a woman uh, I think is quite a significant piece of work and it does really cover a wide range of topics and and writers doesn't it It there, there, there is that opening section on the gothic romance but there's also a whole chapter on the devil in supernatural literature which might be important for consideration of this book there's a section on ghosts in folk tales and modern ghost stories she writes about people like Algernon Blackwood as well. I suspect I'm, I'm going to read that book in full at, at some point. It does look absolutely fascinating to me. I think it's also interesting that she she also edits uh, a couple of collections, doesn't she? Uh, one is on humorous ghost stories, I think. Yeah, that's a bit later in life, I think. She edits various collections of ghost stories, but it, it just shows that this interest in the supernatural really persists for her. And, you know, we can consider whether there are really elements of the supernatural in the wind or, or not later on but it does seem to be have been a big influence on her she's also a notable folklorist and ethnomusicologist and was even president of the texas folklore society in 1914 in particular it seems like as i was saying earlier the, the folk songs of the black community in in texas are of particular interest to her in the same year that the wind is published she has another book coming out and it's called On the Trail of Negro Folk Songs. It's another thing that we can really see the influence of in The Wind. She publishes a few novels later on in life as well, but it seems to be The Wind that captures the public's attention. And in 1928, there's even a silent film made by Victor Sjöström, starring Lillian Gish. I'm not too familiar with uh, silent film, really, but that's I think that's a really big deal, isn't it? Particularly Lillian Gish, she, she's an extremely well-known actress in that era. She is. And what I thought was also really 
fascinating there or really striking was that Lillian Gish herself talks about the experience of making the wind and how she had felt herself buffeted and kind of ground down by the experience which almost seems to mirror what's happened what happens to Letty in the in the text but they changed the ending don't they apparently so I haven't actually seen the film in in full I've I've seen just clips of it and it does look very beautiful it's visually very striking isn't it Mm, it is i noticed that the ending is this happy ending which of course seems to take away a great deal and also the almost like the purpose of the the wind in the in the dorothy scarborough novel um so i'm assuming they made that change to please audiences i suppose yeah i should imagine so but that is really really one of the the curious things about this novel the fact that there's no deus ex machina there's no retribution or anything like that for letty if you were to plot the the story on a graph it would just go straight downhill wouldn't it in this this novel it would (laughs) so she continues to publish throughout her life she edits those collections of ghost stories and uh, writes for various newspapers and and dies in 1937 it does seem like she was quite a remarkable woman i agree i agree and and i'm surprised that i haven't sort of read more about her really i mean there are quite a few articles about her but you don't hear people talking about the wind or maybe at least in the uk i mean maybe perhaps in in the us um it is spoken of more but i did have a quick trawl to see whether it was on any for example universities um courses and it seemed to me that it was sometimes studied in texas but not so much across the united states but perhaps i'm wrong there it's just a kind of quick search do you think it would it's uh, something that should be on various university courses would you like to see it coming up more often well i think it's a great example of eco uh, or eco-gothic so if you take that kind of growing interest in the eco-gothic that we've seen over the last few years, uh, particularly I was thinking of the great editor collection by Andrew Smith and William Hughes on the eco-gothic that looks not only at romantic gothic and that link to the environment, but also examines things like the Wicker Man in that context. Uh, it seems to me that this fits perfectly into the eco-gothic and um, in that collection I've just mentioned there's an interesting essay by Kevin Corstephine on gothic and the American frontier but it doesn't really talk about the wind at all which surprised me. Is it mentioned? Um, It's not mentioned there but he does draw attention to the gothic sublimity of the vast empty spaces of the American frontier landscapes that were experienced by early settlers and I would have thought that would have fitted perfectly into into that discussion it does seem like an ideal candidate for that i, I agree but since we're talking about genre i thought it might be interesting to think about what this novel is exactly i think we both read this really quite quite interesting article by john c Orr called when East Meets West, Rethinking the Domestic Heroine and the Western in, in Dorothy Scarborough's The Wind, which begins by outlining these two genres and the, the character archetypes we, we find within them, the, the domestic novel and, and the Western. And in the domestic novel, the action takes place 
mostly within interiors, the kitchen and the drawing room and the bedroom and generally within private spaces. And the the heroine of such novels typically undergoes a kind of struggle, the end result being what Orr calls the, the assertion of the feminine ego. So that conflict and the resolution of it um, in a domestic novel is essentially an internal one. So we might think of the, the plot of such a novel as almost slightly more purely psychological in, in nature. And I think in Letty, we can see that some of the typical characteristics of uh, the domestic heroine. Yes, you can. Uh, but, it, but it seems like the novel to me is like a mixture of uh, the, the Western or anti-Western, the domestic novel and the Gothic text. Because, for example, you know, you have those elements of the domestic novel. You have the description of Letty as pretty, childish. She has some periwinkle blue eyes. She has cheeks that bloom like peaches and the description of Wirt Roddy um, who is her seducer is almost a stock seducer of the kind that you find in Victorian melodrama I mean he's handsome he's dark and he even constantly plays with his moustache which I think is described as um, quirking up at the ends so you can imagine him can't you on a Victorian stage about to ravage the heroine but but then also he seems to fit into that model of the Byronic hero or anti-hero because he he does cause that kind of unease and he is coercive isn't he so he's also he also fits into that model of, of masculinity yeah he's not exactly the typical protagonist that you might find in the western either is he 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 doesn't seem to play that role in the novel you know he's not particularly taciturn or uncommunicative as you might expect to find from the the typical sort of man of action the man of few words that you, you might find in a in the western novel he, he seems somewhere in between yes and we don't actually know what he does really do we you know we get the sense that he's been successful in, in the west but we don't really quite know why whereas it's very clear that people like cousin beverly and lige whom letty marries and saldo are always trying to make um a go of it with their cattle ranches aren't they he is a somewhat enigmatic figure we know that he has money but we have no idea of its source but it's one of the things that allows him to lure letty to a degree you know just thinking of this as a as maybe a, a hybrid novel as as uh, or does in his article it would be very easy to think of it as simply letty as the domestic heroine transposed into the you know the open space of the of the western in those terms just as a as a woman placed into a man's world somehow but that's complicated in in various ways isn't it by the presence of certain characters i'm thinking of cora in particular yes she sort of undermines that that very simplistic reading of the gender roles in uh, in a hybrid novel of that sort. Yes, she does. And I think that Letty herself is, is problematic because even though if she'd stayed in Virginia, she'd obviously have been a wonderful wife and um, kind of potted around the house, arranging flowers and looking after her children... Here, she loses even that ability. She hasn't been trained for a domestic life that includes cooking, washing, uh, looking after children in very difficult conditions. Whereas Cora is just uh, a kind of, well, a goddess of the prairie, as she's described. I love this description of her. Maybe it's worth reading in full. Yeah, so she's tall, 
like some goddess of the prairie, deep-bosomed, with noble, softly flowing lines like a statue, erect, instinct with vibrant, magnetic life. Her eyes were golden-brown, with slumbering fires in them. Her hair was coppery-red, piled high on her head, her skin a warm cream with a few amber freckles. How does that description of her strike you? She makes me think, again, of a kind of new woman figure. Even though she's in the domestic space, she's very much in control of her environment. She can have sort of masculine jokes with Saldo and get away with it. She's got a great deal of bravado and confidence, hasn't she? And to all intents and purposes, she's head of the household. Physically, she's certainly not described in, in masculine terms. And she has this sort of can-do attitude. She's kind of always bustling around. She's busy. She's, yeah, very much the head of the household, like you say. But interestingly, in this environment, we're told at the very beginning of the novel, when Wet Roddy meets Letty on the train, that the winds that blow out there on the plains, he describes them as ruination to a woman's looks and nerves. It dries up her skin till it gets brown and tough as leather. It about near puts her eyes out with the sand it blows in them all day. It gets on her nerves with its constant blowing, makes her irritable and, and jumpy. And I think we see Cora somehow is immune to that to a degree. She has this inner strength that allows her to be you know, sort of impermeable. Absolutely. She's like a kind of Puraf-like beauty, isn't she? That kind of monumental sort of woman that you find in Dante Gabriel Rossetti's uh, paintings. And yet, you know, there she is, transposed to this kind of arid west and making a go of it. Do we know if she's a native of, of this region? I think she is, isn't she? Because doesn't her father have a ranch? Or if they're not native to this region, they've certainly been there long enough for her family to establish a ranch and for her brothers and herself to have lived there for quite a while. It just strikes me that it must then be something particular about Letty that will allow her to be ruined by this wind. Maybe it's, maybe it's a certain innocence that has come from not growing up in this environment. Among the wild horses of the plains there would be now and then one fleet and strong and cunning that could never be trapped by man, that had never felt the control of bridle, the sting of spur, a stallion that raced over the prairies at will, uncaptured and uncapturable, one with supernatural force and speed so that no pursuer could ever come up with him so cunning that no device could ever snare him, a being of diabolic wisdom. One could hear his wild neighing in the night as he sped over the plains. One could fancy he saw his mane flying back, his hoofs striking fire even from the yielding sand, a satanic horse for whom no man would ever be the match. Some thought him a ghost horse, imperishable, but now his shrill neighing is heard no more on the prairies by night, for man has driven him out. He has fled to other prairies, vast and fenceless, where man has not intruded, and now one knows him only in legend. So the norther was a wild stallion that raced over the plains, mighty in power, cruel in spirit, more to be feared than man, 
One could hear his terrible neighings in the night, and fancy one saw him sweeping over the plains with his imperious mane flying backward and his fiery hooves ready to trample one down. How could a frail, sensitive woman fight the wind? How oppose a wild shouting voice that never let her know the peace of silence? A resistless force that was at her all the day, a naked, unbodied wind, like a ghost more terrible because invisible, that wailed to her across waste places in the night, calling to her like a demon lover. In certain senses, it really does feel like this timid young girl has been placed in a very masculine environment. And the landscape and the, the wind in particular is described in masculine terms. You know, it's described as a, as a stallion, as you said earlier. There's that description of the cyclone when Work Roddy is talking to Letty about the winds uh, when, he, when they're still on the train. And he describes it as a kind of deadly tornado, um, a bull buffalo, a wind that's shaped like a funnel, small at the ground and spreading out wide at the top. It just, just struck me that it was a very kind of phallic figure of the, of, the, of the cyclone, but also it seems to kind of reinforce the fear that Letty has of the wind and how that correlates with her fear of, of Wurtz Roddy. But also it made me think of that uh, final line of the novel, you know, the wind was at last to have its way with her, which seems to sexualise the relationship with the wind, doesn't it? It does, yeah. Um, even the description of it as a as a wild stallion, you know, racing over the plains. The masculine pronoun is often used to describe it. One could hear his terrible neighings in the night. It says, and I think to some degree, it's, although it might be a very straightforward reading, we can definitely see a correlation between the way that the wind assails Letty and the way that she's assailed by these three male characters in the book. You know, Lige and Sourdough travel over together to Beverly's house where Letty is staying in order to simultaneously propose in quite a comic scene, I think. Yeah. But it seems that masculine attention is as present as the wind, is as incessant as the, as the wind in the novel. Well, also, it's figured sometimes as a kind of domestic abuse. Do you remember? Because it talks about um, the wind's cruelty to women. They they buffet them. They ruin their good looks. They strain their nerves. That all seems to me very uh, reminiscent of uh, the way that domestic abusers might work. I think there's no mistake in the in the correlation there. Would you in any way consider this to be a feminist text? In some ways it, it does seem to have that, those elements, doesn't it? Especially in the description of Cora and, and also in Letty's kind of... To some extent she is, she is resilient, she does try to adapt, it's just that psychologically she begins to break down. But also um, I'd have to kind of contest that because it's very much also about the competition between women isn't it because Cora ends up um, chucking Letty out or Letty feels she has to marry Lige because of Cora's jealousy because she thinks that um, her husband is is going to fall in love with Letty. I also feel that, that that's not the only reason for it I think it it's more of an inevitability. It's kind of taken for granted as soon as this young girl arrives here that she not only will adapt to the way of life there, you know, learn to 
learn to cook, learn to ride a horse, which she will also definitely marry, is regarded as, as almost a small rebellion for her not to know whether she wants to or not. And, and the other interesting thing in terms of the sort of gender dynamics is the way in which, for example, Sado and Lige, before Letty arrives and is a possible kind of candidate for marriage, that they have to set up home, don't they? And, um, mm. you know, one of them has to cook for the other or they, they become a domestic, a domestic couple, essentially, don't they? They do, yeah. I found their relationship quite amusing. We've been talking about the book in very serious terms, but there is there is humour in here too, I think. Yeah, there is, yeah. Real, real moments of humour. I think particularly Sado and his attempts to imp- impress Letty. Yeah, by riding really fast or... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, or dressing really dressing in really snazzy cowboys clothes <laughs> i have to say i had a picture of kind of john voigt's and midnight cowboy when when that, that particular scene did you uh well no i i, I, don't, know the film. <laughs> I don't know the film be before uh, your time maybe maybe a, maybe like a rhinestone cowboy <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I thought it was really interesting the way that folk song is is used throughout the novel. And I'm surprised to see, I'm surprised not to see a certain folk song being mentioned in any of the articles that I've read. Because in in my opinion, there's one in particular that underpins the whole narrative and functions like a sort of skeleton for the for the plot and that's surprising for various reasons not only because it's a really famous scottish ballad uh, it was included in francis james child's huge collection the the english and scottish popular ballads which essentially forms the basis of the folk revival in the 50s and 60s but it's also it also has a sort of literary pedigree as well and particularly for female writers shirley jackson and elizabeth bowen have written stories called the demon lover uh, and that's the name of that that folk song. And Shirley Jackson uses the character of the demon lover throughout whole groups of of her stories. There's a, a figure that recurs throughout them that's taken directly from this from this song. And I think that as a scholar of folk songs, Dorothy Scarborough would certainly have been aware of it. I think it's explicitly in there. It's not just something that is subtly within the architecture of the book on the very first page scarborough refers to the wind calling like a demon lover you know we we might hear echoes of um of coleridge there but i think it's more likely that scarborough is thinking of that of that ballad i think she's clearly somebody who's very conscious of, of writing she's she's a literary critic isn't she we see that in some of the material in um the her thesis so she would have been very conscious of what she was doing i i think and the story of it is is that a, a man returns to his former love only to find that she's married to another and she has a baby but being a rich man he whisks her away on board one of his ships and with promises of gold and and love and fortune an easier way of life which is something i think we can see directly in Wirt roddy and they sail away together and at a certain point in the song she notices she notices these hills in the distance on either side and i'll just quote from one of the versions there oh what hills what hills are those my love those hills that shine like gold those are the hills of heaven my love where you and i can't go and what hills what hills are those my love those hills so dark and cold those are the hills of hell my love where you and i must go 
what hills, what hills are those, my love? Those hills that shine like gold are those, are the hills of heaven, my love, where you and I can go. And what hills, what hills are those, my love? Those hills so dark and cold are those, are the hills of hell, my love, where you and I must go. Now they'd not been on board above three weeks. And, and at this point, the female protagonist of the song notices the cloven foot of this man. And, of course, he's the, the devil. And he strikes the top mast with his hand and breaks the ship in two, and they both drown to death. This is obviously a kind of cautionary tale and is presumably designed to warn women about the perils of desire and, and of leaving their proper domestic place. But I think it performs several functions in the novel. You know, we might see those the juxtaposition of the hills of heaven and the hills of hell there as perhaps representative of the, the two regions, the two states that are directly juxtaposed, Virginia and, and Texas. There's a kind of straight duality there, I think. There's also the the character of Wirt Roddy, who I think it's sort of suggested throughout the novel that if he's not the devil himself, there is a there's a real devilish aspect to him. We're told at the beginning when they meet on the train that she has this feeling of having seen him before and he conjures images in Letty's mind, impressions of, she says, half pleasurable recollections, half fear and repulsion, vaguely commingled in the waking remembrance of a dream. You know, and it might be a stretch, but I think even in the name of Roddy, we can hear echoes of of ruddy and those those two words are sort of related et- etymologically i don't know for me at least there was this idea of the the kind of red-haired devil as many associations in folklore would have it and i think the ballad is a kind of cautionary tale the frame of it complicates the the ending of the wind because whereas in the song the the, the message is a distinctly anti-feminist one you know don't leave your responsibilities behind or s- stay with your husband and child and letty uh, in resisting Wirt roddy's charms is in some sense essentially acquiescing to the standards expected in society you know though she's in this loveless marriage with lige she is making that that decision not to leave the domestic space and to kind of occupy the role that has been determined for her so there's something ambiguous there i think i'd agree and i think it's also interesting that it takes this moment where she's threatened i suppose with seduction and fallenness to recognize her love for lige doesn't she because suddenly she Mm. thinks he's not he's not that bad i I, he's a very gentle man i could love him but it's almost too late by the time she realizes that it's also not clear to me that that moment of realization is actually love although that's what we're told perhaps we realize that there is just no other option for letty other than taking the devil's side do you think i'm overdoing the devil thing no absolutely not i think that's there right the way through you know roddy's visits sort of punctuate the novel don't they and they are like visitations where he keeps promising promising her things doesn't he He keeps suggesting that you know he if she'd taken his advice and gone with him in the first instance 
instance, she wouldn't be suffering as she is now, even though she would have lost her soul. And it, it would have represented a kind of promiscuity that would be unacceptable both to life in Sweetwater and to Letty herself to have agreed to it and, and gone with him. So he's this figure of temptation. He is. He's a very kind of strong and charismatic figure of uh, temptation. And what's really kind of noticeable, isn't it, throughout the novel, is how those moments where she engages with Work Roddy, she is both full of desire and longing and yet completely uneasy about the feelings that, she, that he seems to elicit from her. The sound was hurled against the house with a violence that seemed hellishly malevolent, vindictive. The wind had gathered to itself seven other devils of sand to torment the helpless inmates of the lonely house. Sands streamed in through the cracks in the walls and slit the newspapers into ribbons. It seeped in at the edges of doors and windows were shut as tight as possible. It came down from the ceiling. It blew upward through cracks in the flooring. It hung like a yellow fog in the room. Letty looked out the window to see the sky. The sun rode aloft in a pageantry of clouds, casting a yellow glow over a strange world. Whirling curtains of dust, veils that writhed and twisted, hung like cloth of gold from the heavens, as high as she could see. The wind was no longer naked and invisible. It had clothed itself with those swirling veils that revealed its obscene antics, its horrific gestures. It was a thing unbearable to see the wind. You had some ideas about this this final scene. What, what did it mean to you? Because this is something that is also foreshadowed in, in a snippet of folk song. And that seems to be one of the functions of the folk songs in this novel. You know, we have the Virginian folk song, I Don't Want to Die in a Storm. And what was the other one? Lay Me Down in the Prairie? What was that? Yeah, that, that, that's right at the beginning as well. Isn't it? When what, what Roddy says it, doesn't he? Yeah, he sings it softly to himself. Oh, bury me not on the lone prairie where the wild coyotes will howl over me. In a narrow grave just six by three, oh, bury me not on the lone prairie. And that's exactly what she does, doesn't she? Buries him on the lone prairie. Yeah. It's, ex- it's extremely brutal, that that final scene isn't it you know the novel has been building to it clearly uh, for a long time it's almost like the region in undergoing this drought which we haven't actually mentioned the the drought is suffering some kind of biblical plague the landscape becomes more and more apocalyptic the cattle begins to die of malnutrition and thirst the business is going to ruin the house is falling apart everything is deteriorating just as letty's psyche is and then we reach this culmination point. 
when she kills him it's it's kind of shocking enough but when she with all musters all her strength to bury him because you know we get the impression she's quite a small slight young woman yet she finds the strength to bury him and um, she buries him in the sand doesn't she and then the wind comes and starts to reveal his body so her fear of the wind she's being tormented by the wind yet again um, and this is kind of like awful uh, moment where she looks out the window and I think can I just read that little bit because I think it's really yeah, read it, fascinating yeah. it says, she looked out of the window and stared with fright at the mound surely she wasn't seeing right that spot there that white spot couldn't be Wirt's Roddy's crossed hands showing and then another puff of wind lifted another veil of sand as if to convince her and then it goes on and she starts to see more and more of, of his of his face. So we've got this, it goes on, it says, Slowly, grain by grain, the sand was shifting from the treacherous mound. The wind had come from the east so that the windbreak couldn't shelter the sand any more. Soon the face was uncovered, the face so quiet and stern. She gazed at it, stiff with horror. The eyelids were weighted down with sand. The sand was in the black moustache. But the face showed plainly the dead face. That just left me... It, it actually, this still gives me goosebumps. And I read this quite late at night, this particular passage. And uh, it really did kind of haunt my dreams. I was similarly reading this late at night. This scene has a lot to do with what I would think of it as a work of, of horror fiction. It has all the kind of suspense and, and brutality of, um, of the best horror fiction, I think. Obviously, there's a, a, a tradition of pioneer fiction around this, this period, and there are some better-known examples of that. And I wondered if you felt that the wind, you know, is good enough to stand beside some of those better-known works. I think it is. Um, I think that Colin describes it as a minor classic of American literature, doesn't she, doesn't she in her article? Uh, but I think it's certainly comparable to something like, you know, Willa Cather's uh, A Lost Lady or um, My Antonia, which I think was discussed recently, wasn't it, in, back, in the Backlisted podcast? Yeah, that's right. But I think there are connections with uh, a number of novels, both um, both American and um, and and British and French. So if you think about something like a lost lady, you know, it's, it's, an, it's a 1923 novel that's set in Sweetwater, Nebraska. The, the fact that it had the same the same name, the same town name in both novels really struck me when I first read it. And I had to kind of go back to a lost lady, which I hadn't read for quite a while to make sure that that wasn't Sweetwater, Texas. Um, but Marion Forrester, who's the kind of main female pr protagonist in that particular novel, um, you know, lives in a small railroad town in the late 19th century in the Western Prairies. And, you know, like, like Letty, she's bored, she's not interested in frontier life, she resorts to adultery. So sometimes I could think of her as perhaps a more capable, resilient version of, a, of an older Letty, perhaps. Um, but I know that Lost Lady has also been compared to things like Flaubert's Madame Bovary, 
um, uh, with that boredom of social isolation and, and infidelity um, and the constant result particularly in Madame Bovary, to a life of the imagination. I think we see that, don't we, with um, Letty's constant, recor constant recourse to life in Virginia, which I'm sure is also romanticised to some extent. Do you think Scarborough had such things in mind? I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, she certainly mentions Hardy's tests in that book on the set, Supernatural, doesn't she? And I think that some of uh, Letty's ripeness that's described in that early part of the novel, you know, where her cheeks bloom like peaches, um, that reminded me of the luxuriance of, of Tess in Tess of the D'Urbervilles, you know, that moment when um, Alec D'Urbervilles feeding her ripe strawberries and he talks about her as having this kind of luxuriance of aspect. Um, so, I, so I think there was, there was something there that made me think of that correlation between Tess and Letty and the way that both are actually affected by the landscapes in which they have to exist. And then, of course, finally, um, the murder in both The Wind and in uh, Tess of the D'Urbervilles. One thing I would say in comparison with, well, Madame Bovary and, and uh, Tess is that this is a chaster novel than those two by, by quite a long way, I think. It's much more hesitant in its descriptions of uh, sexuality or even sexual desire. It always seems to be described at, at a certain remove by Scarborough, wouldn't you say? Letty is not only young and innocent, but also quite immature. Well, no, that's not the right word. I think, yes, I think she is immature. She's immature and yeah. she's, she's frightened of um, the very idea of sexual desire, I think. Well, with Lyde, she is, but she clearly is affected by her own desire for work Roddy. There's a sexual frisson whenever they meet, isn't there? There is, yeah. He does bring something out of her or kind of makes her respond in a certain way that she doesn't um, respond to Lige or Sauda, for example. But there's no such scene as there is in, in Tess, you know, in, oh, no. the, in the darkened wood. <laughs> No. Uh, there's nothing of that nature at all in here. It seems like Scarborough is from a fairly conservative background too, so that might have had something to do with it. Because I, I think if you think about something like, or someone like Edith Wharton, she doesn't shy away from intimacy or that suggestion of, of sexual desire, does she? No, no, you're right. So it may be to do with Scarborough's own background. And it sounds like the novel caused enough problems when it was first published without adding sex scenes to it. Yeah, quite so. <laughs> <laughs> the last one was um, just, it just came to my mind because of the description of Letty. And that was uh, Mary Elizabeth Braddon's Lady Audley's Secret. You know, they, they share that same blonde girlishness and beauty, yet they both become capable of murder due to their circumstances. I, I don't know that, that book, actually. Probably it's something that I should know, but I, I haven't read that one. I think you'd enjoy it. Two questions for you. Would you recommend this book and to whom? Well, who's going to like this book, do you think? Because I, I absolutely loved it. I mean, I, I don't stress that enough when I do this show that, that some of the books have become really important to me. And, and I, I know this one is going to be something that I go back to for sure. It was 
wonderful experience to read it. It's an incredibly memorable text, isn't it? And I suppose that one of the things that struck me when I'd read it was that we don't really read enough about that uh, women's experience of the West. And it actually made me go and to watch um, the Netflix series called Godless, which is set in a, a town called Labelle, which is all about women's experience. You know, all the men have died in a mining accident, apart from one or two. And the women have to be resilient, be uh, bold, um, protect themselves and each other. And uh, and that, that was really kind of quite an amazing experience. So I would certainly recommend uh, this novel to anyone who watched that series. If you liked Godless, I think you would like this novel. Um, but I would certainly teach this to my students. I'd teach it as a as an example of eco-gothic, for example. I'd teach it as an example of pioneer fiction. And I, I just think it's something that stays with you. So um, I'd recommend it highly. Uh, and, and I think the only reservation I would have would be the, that kind of casual racism but I think I'd have to warn people that that's there but if people can read Gone with the Wind and I think they can read Dorothy Scarborough's The Wind It's an exercise in in the sublime to some degree isn't it the the description of the the landscape is just a masterful example of how to bring out the the menace of of certain landscapes and and clearly her childhood years in in Sweetwater planted a seed in Dorothy Scarborough's mind that they wouldn't leave her alone that you know must have been as incessant as the the wind that blows through the novel for Letty. Yes and I, and I think what we also haven't mentioned is how that terror of the landscape is coupled with an absolute beauty. You know, even those descriptions of the rolling clouds that bring the sandstorm or uh, the wonderful sunsets that are created through the drought. Um, it's kind of a strange experience, is it? Because you're torn between the, the, the horror of life in those landscapes and the simultaneous beauty uh, of uh, certain aspects of this dangerous um, climate. We said that Letty's memories of Virginia are the only kind of solace she can achieve, but those those moments with the sunsets and sunrises are similarly for her moments of escape, I think. Yes, I'd agree with that. So thanks, thanks so much for, for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, Sam. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Sherd's Podcast. The readings were provided by Iga Wisniewska. If you have any questions or comments about our conversation, please write to us at sherdspodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram or Twitter. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.
Sherds podcast is part of the Holdfast Network. Go to holdfastnetwork.com for more programs you may enjoy.